Sam. Hello? Hey, Sam. Yeah. Hi. All right. So I've just been kind of giving um, Grandma a little heads up of what we're going to talk about, but she wants, um, she was saying if you have specific questions for her, she would prefer that than just um, telling her about her life. So um, I kind of gave her an idea of what we wanted to talk about um, with Devar and just a story about the kids. But Sam, I'm going to basically be quiet and I'm going to let you take over if that's okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So hi, Grandma. Hi, Sam. You having a Sunday nap? <laughs> you know what? If I'm be being oh. honest, I laid down with my boys. We were laying there. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I uh, fell asleep. And then Kim was like, Sam, aren't you supposed to be on a podcast? So here I am. Can you guys hear me? Yes, I can hear you fine. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so, yeah, Grandma. Um, Okay. Um, so, Grandma, when we do these, and, and I don't know what uh, Cass has, how, how she kind of explained it, but it's just, it is kind of just tell us about, you know, w w well, when we do it with our siblings, we talk about like specific things, events in our life or whatever. Um, but I, th we just want to kind of be able to record you, to hear your voice, to hear you talk about what it was like raising your 10 kids and, and uh, kind of just have you talk about some stuff. And so, um, and, and, and to kind of record kind of your history. And so if we can just start kind of where you grew up, and, and I might interject here and there, but Grandma, where were you born? I was born in Phoenix, Arizona. Okay. Uh, yeah, and uh, I still remember the little house there and the, the home where I was born and the address. And we used to go back. After we'd moved to and so you were born in Phoenix. Yes, in Phoenix. And uh, my grandma and grandpa, my grandpa was a chiropractor and he lived just across the street from the big St. Joseph's Hospital. And he had his own practice in his home, but he had access to the hospital also. And and when we were children and go back to visit him, we we could go over there and play in the hallway of those of those the hospital where he worked you know and the had tile floors that were cool and it was quite hot in phoenix we like to lay on those cool floors and, and they just let us play in there and lay on the floors and roll around and stuff <laughs> but, uh, they lived on uh, 415 east polk street the streets okay. at that time of course it's changed much now because it's a huge metropolis but they were kind of named after the presidents of the united states and I remember the little home and when we'd go there and our visits with them and, and the, the life that they lived. And, and back in those days, people done more visiting. So in the evening when it was starting to cool down, they'd come out on a big wraparound porch they had on their little home there. And they would have people come by and sit and, and visit with them and we'd listen to them or we'd mm -hmm. roller skate around the block and, and just be right there where we could be within the uh, range of our parents, you know, our grandparents and didn't go very far, but yeah, but uh, they were just a real wonderful little, little couple. How many kids were in your family, Grandma? My, my mother was an only child. Gram and my mother had one other child. I had an older daughter, I mean, daughter, sister uh, that uh, was about two years older than I am named Laura. And she just had the two children. And the reason that we moved from 
teenage was because my mother divorced my biological father when I was eight months old. And my okay. grandparents told her that she could come back and stay with them and finish her college, get a degree in business, which she did. And she lived with them for the next three years until she got a degree in, in business. And she moved with us two little girls to, at that time after that uh, took place to a, a little town in Arizona called Tuba City, Arizona. And she got a job there with a Mr. Walker who owned a big complex of buildings and had a business there and she was his private, they called them stenographers in those days, but right. they call them secretary now. But uh, she was his private secretary and, and we lived there and, and uh, we'd been there about oh, a year when my mother met my stepfather to be the one that she would marry. And he was down on the reservation doing surveying for the government at that time. And he met my mother and began to date her and a year later, when I was about five, they were married. And we moved up into to Bluff when I was five years old. And I lived there in Bluff until I was married to Grandpa and moved up there to Blanding. I went to school, high school in Blanding. But we had to leave home in the school year during the week and board with the family in, in Blanding to go to high school. And we would, they didn't have bus service. So we would ride the mail truck, <laughs> a little mail truck that they had back and forth from Blanding to Bluff on the weekends, going home and then coming back again early on Monday morning for school. But uh, I did that the four years I was in high school here. Okay, so, so, um, so you were, were living in Bluff and you graduated high school from Blanding, Blanding High School, is that right? Yes. They didn't have okay. it. They had a, a one-room schoolhouse in Bluff and we were taught by one teacher eight grades for the first eight years of my schooling. Went through the eighth grade in, in the one-room schoolhouse. Wow. And most children, well, the population of Bluff at that time was around 200 people. And we had about 22 maybe at the most children in school in those eight grades. So we might sometimes have a class with just one or two children in a class. And so uh, she would... Uh, have us bring our chairs up to her desk and get our assignments and then go back to our desk and, and work on our assignments while the next class would come up and that's why she would, would uh, schedule the school day, you know. But we always had a superintendent that came down from Monticello that would critique the children, see what level they were on and, and bring supplies. And, and so when we went away to high school, when we were in the freshman year of high school, school we were up on the same level as the other children in Blandy. we weren't behind at all even though we were taught in a one-room schoolhouse eight grades with one teacher they made sure that we were up to score you know doing the same as they were yeah and so i grew up in a little quiet little town back in those days there wasn't any paved roads everything was sandy roads mm. dirt roads and not very many people who grew up, but it was quiet, peaceful, and I loved growing up. I had a lot of responsibilities. I had chores to take care of, like milking cows and feeding pigs. I rode horses. We didn't have cars. Our folks maybe might each have a car, but young people never had cars or anything of that nature. And so we just either rode a bike or rode a horse. And 
and uh, my life was very enjoyable yeah. as far as I knew. We were kind of sheltered from the world. We were going through a time of the Great Depression. Yes, uh, the Great Depression started in 1929. I was about two years old when that began. And so it didn't end, you know, the, during my years growing up in Buffett. It never affected us because we had our home and we had our, our animals and uh, gardens and, and uh, we had everything we needed, you know, to be comfortable. And so we never were suffering from the depression down in the little town where we were. And everyone was more or less the same class of people. They on about the same wage scale. Some of them didn't have jobs. They were just farmers or sheep and cattle men. Or, uh, had a little business, you know, that that uh, they didn't have uh, any great responsibilities other than just they were home with their families at night. So it's we were raised in a little town where it was very family oriented, and uh, everyone knew everyone, and we had to make our own games instead of. Uh, the electronic technology they have today for children. We we had to make games up and play in the streets if, after school or at night time until it's time to go to bed. And we never had central heating or lighting. We had coal lamps or carbide lamps and and uh, outdoor plumbing toilets <laughs> and uh, very pioneer type of uh, years that I grew up down there. But uh, I can't think of a time going back because we went through very bad times. Uh, uh, as far as yeah. going without anything, we had all we needed to to have uh, food and clothing and shelter and, and what we needed. And, and we very seldom went anywhere. But when we did, you know, it was in old jalopies. At, yeah, Grandma. Like old Model, a, Model T Fords. Yes. Let me let me ask you this. Do you remember when and where you met Grandpa Devar? Actually, he had grandparents that lived in Bluff, but I, Devar was seven years older than I was, so I didn't pay any attention to him when I was around. But he would come down there and visit the grandparents from Blanding, but he didn't uh, mean anything to me other than it was Mr. And Mrs. Powell's grandsons, you know. And uh, I never actually met what you call meet Devar until after. I went away to high school. I knew his sister. She was the same age as I was, Dixie. And she would come down to visit her grandparents in the summer. I became close friends with her. And so uh, I knew the family kind of through Dixie when she'd come down to visit her grandparents. And uh, I met Devar right actually say for the first time when he just came home from his mission. But uh, I was in, I was a sophomore in high school at the time, and and he'd gone away to school one year there at Logan. Oh, yes, Logan at uh, Utah State, and then he'd gone from there into the mission field. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he was just home for his mission when I was about sixteen years old and met him for the first time. But he didn't really mean that much to me. I mean, he was just a way out of my reach as far as I concerned when I first knew how to knew him. But it was through his sister Dixie that we met. After he came home that first time, we 
Dixie was had him take us down to Moab to a basketball game one time. That was the first time that I actually sat and had a conversation with him or uh, felt that he had an interest in me of any kind. And then after that, soon after that happened, he went away and joined the Navy. Okay. Because he knew that World War was World War II was on, and he knew he was going to be called into the Army. He didn't want to go into the Army, so. It, he went up to Salt Lake and enlisted in the Navy. And uh, he, he actually he told me the reason he did that was because he didn't want to fight in combat. He would rather be on a, a ship or do some kind of uh, military service that wasn't where he had to battle, you know, face to face or anything. And so he chose to join the Navy. So when he got out of boot camp up at Farragut, Idaho, he went to Wapleton, North Dakota, and went into a school there for engineering. And he got a degree in engineering. So when he was uh, finished there, hmm. he was assigned to his first ship. And he went in as fireman first class, which meant he would be working in the engine room among the big engines of the ships. And that would be his uh, military uh, position, you know, that he'd be doing that instead of work, being on guns or in combat or going on shore. And he was fighting against the Japanese in the South Pacific. Mm-hmm. So actually, uh, we, we dated a few times when he came home on leave during that time, but his yeah. sister Dixie passed away when she was only 16. And I had dated him a couple of times when he was home just prior to, it was around Christmas time, and and uh, he had been home, and during that time we had dated, and he'd gone back in, into San Diego, so he was deployed again to wait uh, for his ship, and, and uh, during that time his sister passed away with spinal meningitis, so he didn't get home for the funeral because communication was so poor, all they had was the Red Cross and, and uh, telegraph service, you know, and and so it took a long time for him to get the information of which sister had passed away and for him to get permission to get leave and come home. So he didn't come back until after she had died. And uh, then uh, it was, I didn't see him at that time, but uh, the next time he came home, we began dating again. And so when I was a senior in high school, he was home on a survival's leave in 1945 and we dated during that period of time and he asked me if I would marry him. I was just finishing my senior year. I only lacked about a couple of weeks before graduation and I didn't know what to do, you know, and I had already made plans to go up to to Logan to go to Utah State College. We knew a professor that was uh, in biology that used to come to Bluff to get specimens for his plants and our family knew him and he would stay with us when he'd come to Bluff so he'd made arrangements for him to go to college at, at the Utah State and that was what my plans were so I told him I'd have to talk to the bishop's wife who I was staying with during my years in high school <clears throat> I was staying with the bishop and his wife here in Landy and uh she gave her permission, so I told her then, told him all, and I'd have to talk to my folks. We ran, came down to Blandy and borrowed a pickup to come in, and 
and my mother was home, but my father was down at Mexican, had a, his camp, he was a state road foreman. And so he had a camp set up in Mexican hat. So my mother said, well, if he said it was all right, it'd be all right with her. I had just turned 18. And uh, so we had to go down to Mexican hat and get my dad's permission. <laughs> and by the time we got back, we, we only had about a week left on his leave. So uh, we kind of married in haste. Um, the bishop got me her daughter's temple clothing and we got our temple recommends. <laughs> we got a ride to uh, Salt Lake and got up there and got our license and all the things we had to do in my wedding dress in one day's time. And, and we're supposed to be at the temple at five o'clock on the 4th of April. Wow. And we were a little bit late getting there, but we made it. And there was 10 other war brides that was going through that night. That's when they used to have the long dialogue. And it was about midnight when we finally got out. I'll tell you to this day, I can't remember the interior of that Salt Lake Temple. Mm -hmm. I was so tired and so confused, everything. But we, we got married and came home. And, <laughs> and he, But before we came, he went up to his recruiting officer and, and slipped him a $10 bill for 10 extra days because his ship was in dock in a place called uh, Vallejo, California, in a little place called Mare Island. So he had some extra time here in the States waiting. So they gave him an extra 10 days. So with that time, we came back down here and had a wedding dance. And I guess you might call it a slight honeymoon until he had to leave and go back up. And then I stayed and finished high school. And he was stationed there at Vallejo yet. So the night after graduation, I left to go on the train to California to meet him. We had a, a couple of months there before he was shipped out again. And when he was shipped out, the war was over that year in August, about, I think it was the 15th of August in 1945. And so uh, we didn't know when he left, would we ever see each other again to be truthful. But um, thank goodness it worked out that way. And he was his ship, the O'Brien, mm -hmm. USS O'Brien, was one of the first ships going into Tokyo Bay after the, the surrender. And so Duvar was about three ships away from this big Missouri that uh, General MacArthur came in on from the Philippines to have them sign and surrender. So he watched the, the general come out on the deck of the Missouri and set up the card table with one chair. And uh, the emperor, Hirohito, came on or took a little ship off the shore into the ship there, the Missouri. He and two of his uh, aides got off and came on board the Missouri on deck there. And he wouldn't even invite them to sit or anything. They had to bend over and sign an unconditional surrender. And he never got up when they left. They got up and turned around, got back on the ship and left again. And Devar uh, watched that ceremony. And an hour or two later, Missouri left, went back to the Philippines again, but that was, I think was quite historical for Devar to be able to witness that. Yeah. And he did, but he couldn't get out of the uh, Navy. He had enough points actually, but it took him until November of that year to get released, which he did and came home and then began his years of mining and raising our family.
how long did you guys that's a great story by the way and and you i want to ask you about the uh 10 war brides that were in front of you at the temple but how long did you and grandpa date before you guys got married oh off and on for about uh two years whenever he'd be home you know from from the service on leave or something like that we would date during the time he'd come then but i never really felt like i loved him until that last time he came home i i was attracted to him but i had other plans and i was dating other boys and and uh, but when he came home that last time i knew there was a change and actually he proposed to me up at the high school he had uh, gone home and told his mother one day well he was at home on leave but he said I'm going to ask Madge Hayes. My stepfather's name was Hayes. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to ask Madge Hayes to marry him. And she said, what are you waiting for? He says, you mean like now? He says, yeah, <laughs> what are you waiting for? And so he came up during uh, the morning hours of school. And I was working in the school office. I was the office girl. And he came over to the window there at the door and motioned me to come out. And I shook my head, no, I couldn't. And he just stood there and kept doing that. So I asked permission of my principal if I could go out and talk to my friends for just a minute. And he said, all right, and gave me permission to go. So we went up the first flight of steps on the landing there. And he kind of backed me up against the wall and said, you know why I'm here? And I said, no, but you better hurry because I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> and he said, I came up to marry you and asked you to marry me. And I said, oh, sure. You know, and he said, no, I'm serious. And I said, are you serious you know and he said yes he was and uh, I said I don't know and I said I was really confused I didn't want to tell him I said well I can't marry without asking her well that was the bishop <laughs> so he said all right go back just go and get me anyway I told him all I said well we'll have to talk to my mother and my dad you know which we did and got their permission so we went up the next day caught a ride and went up and and then we're married there and came home and he had an extra 10 days. We had about, actually about 14 days so until he had to leave and go back to Vallejo. So went back there and then you, I've told, I've talked about that. Yeah. You mentioned there was like 10, what you called war brides. I'm assuming these are other couples that were trying to get married before someone was sent back to re redeployed. Is that what it was? Yes. That was quite popular during that time because they left girls at home and went into the service. And, you know, during that World War II, it was a, it was a terrible war. Yeah. And so many lives lost and so much destruction. And you didn't know if you were ever going to see your boyfriend again or your fiance or whatever it might be that was in, or even husband. At that, you know, when they were going back into mm -hmm. duty. And so there were so many what they called war brides getting married. And uh, I would, there was 10 other brides besides myself that night that went into the temple to be married on the 4th of April. And then on the night of our wedding dance, on the 12th of April in 1925, Franklin Delano Roosevelt died. And so I remember that, you know, it was quite a historical thing to happen too. So when they went back, when Duar left to go back on duty again, he went under the presidency of Truman, President Truman. And so he was the president uh, in office, you know, for quite a few years after we were first married until General uh, Eisenhower. And then he was our president following that. But going back, you know, I don't want to go into detail. It would take a lot of time to tell a lot of the experiences that Devar had on the ship. 
and during the time of service and things we might can talk about another time. Is there something else you might like to, to hear about? Well, yeah. Um, well, so, so um, Grandma, what I want to kind of talk about now is sort of your family and raising your kids. Did you always want to have 10 kids? I mean, did you know you wanted to have a lot of kids when you were young, when you got married? You know, most of my friends had little brothers or little sisters, and my mother never had children with my stepfather, and, and I always wanted children, or a brother and sister never had any, and so I used to kind of daydream that I was going to marry a farmer and have eight children, which to me was a lot of kids, you know, back then, and uh, it, it, it happened that I married a minor and had 12, actually, I would have had 12 children if I'd had all my babies. But I had 11 live births and lost one little baby through miscarriage. And, and uh, so I would have had 12 children, actually, if I'd have had all my babies. I did. I wanted a large family. So I was never disappointed any time when I knew another little one was on the way. And I appreciated the years that I had the opportunity to be home and be able to be a mother in the home and, and be there, you know, for the kids. I wasn't a very good mother a lot of times, that's for sure. But. At least I was home. One of the first things the kids would say when they'd come home from school would be, Mom. And I said, I'm oh, here. What do you want? And they said, Oh, nothing. <laughs> but they just wanted the assurance, I guess, that I was there. You know, but I appreciate those years that I was able to, to be home and, and be with the kids. But they'll tell you that I was a mean mother a lot of times. Well, yeah, I think, I think we all sort of feel inadequate as parents. Um, so when, when Grandpa got back from the war, where did you guys live at that point? We moved up to Blanding. He had, during the time just prior to going into the mission field, he'd gone out to the mines and he stayed out there for two months, just like a, a child in a cave. And he mined and got enough money to buy uh, an acre of land and bought a little two-room house on it before he went into the mission field. So he put himself, he made enough money with that mine, the Joker mine, to be able to support himself on the mission and buy that piece of property with that little home on it. So after I came home, after Duvar left to go back to service, I went, I came up to Blanding that fall and worked in the school office again until he came home and I fixed the little house up and lived there until he got home. And so when he got home from uh, uh, the Navy and was, was released, we had that two little two-room home we lived in, little outdoor toilet, no hot water, no washer, dryer, fridge, no, had irons on top of the stove, had a wood-burning stove. And when I tell my, my kids that, my grandkids that, they don't like to hear all those things. We bathed in the tin tub and had to heat all the water on the stove. And we lived like that for several years. And, and finally, Grandpa had the opportunity to buy a, uh, yeah, little house. It was a company house out uh, at uh, where he was mining, and he brought that in on a semi-trailer and hooked it onto the little two-house room house we had, and, and enlarged the house so that when we moved to Grand Junction in 1955, we had seven children. Six, yeah, we had seven children, and and uh, we. Uh, moved into a, a large home or a nice home there, but we was, we'd raised those kids up until that time in that little tiny house there. And I never had a bathroom until Casey was born. 
I never had a refrigerator or washing machine until Sally was born. I never had a decent stove until Clark was born. So I, we got things as we could afford them. Yvonne didn't like that. And so as we could afford something, we would buy it. And so it took years sometimes yeah. to get a new convenience. And so I was used to that kind of life, though, being raised as a girl in Bluff. I, so, it, you know, I adjusted to it and, and we were able to get by until we could get something better. And when Grandpa moved to Colorado to mine, he was working out at the, the Calamity Claims up on the Uncompagri Mountain. And sometimes he wouldn't get home for two or three weeks at a time. And he wasn't with his family very much. So we made the decision at that time to move to a Grand Junction. So we sold the little house we had there to his father and for $10,000 in the property and moved up to Grand Junction and bought a home there on a kind of, I would say isolated, but more restricted probably be the better word for it. Residential place that had a big lake by it and, and there just so many homes could be built in that area. And really nice home and we were able to get that home for 29500 Do you think you could do that today? It's a really nice home. And we moved into that and raised our kids over in Grand Junction for the, up until the last two years we were there. And then we built a home out on the ranch that we had bought and built a new home there and lived there for about two years. Moved back to Blanding, moved back to Blanding again in 1973, where We've lived ever since then. So then that, after mine started closing down, that's about all grandpa knew to do. And so he wanted to get back in an area where he had the opportunity to mine again. And we bought a rock quarry so that we had an income from the mines and the rock quarry and, and made that decision to come home. And grandpa used to say he came home like an old elephant to die. And he wanted to be back in Blanding after mine more or less closed up. So we live here, you know, and I'm still hanging around. Yeah. So grandma, um, so I, you know, I, I know about the Grand Junction home. Um, I didn't know that there was a, that you had bought another home in Grand Junction. You said on a ranch. So you guys have purchased a ranch at some point during that period? Yes, we bought 160 acres and we had a man and his son that ran it. They leased it from us after we bought it and they'd feed cattle okay. and raise crops. And they raised a lot of different kinds of crop, like sugar beets, tomatoes, corn, different things that they had a market for. And then we, we decided to, to sell the home we were in. We built a home out there and only lived there for two years. It was a beautiful place. It had a swimming pool and made this raw, just a lovely home. It really was. When Duvar lost his job in the mines he didn't have an income so we knew we had to do something so we put our home up for sale and we sold it and moved back to Blanding I think in all the years grandpa, well the years that grandpa were married we we had five homes and that's you know that that's not very many for being married for nearly for 65 years so we didn't have to move an awful lot so grandma uh can I ask you you know you raised 10 kids. Um, yeah, what were some what were some of the hardest parts that you remember? Hardest part was being having Devar gone when he was gone because I had to be the one that disciplined him. 
and it seemed like I spent a lot too much time being a referee. <laughs> the the fun part was when Devard come home and we do things together as a family and go places and and uh, come to Blandy's folks or my folks or, uh, just doing things as a family. And if you had a church calling or something like that, we'd pack the kids up in a, a station wagon or whatever we happened to have at that time and, and fix the lunch and we'd go on his uh, church assignments with him if it was a steak assignment or somewhere out of town, you know, and, and so, and then we'd take trips together. And, and uh, we always told the kids when we come back, we'd never do it again, but we always did. <laughs> <laughs> we'd threaten them with their life whenever we went to a restaurant. We'd stay in a motel. And <laughs> we had to, when we'd travel, so they wouldn't quarrel with each other, we'd make up games. Uh, license plates or how many of this and that and the other who could see this and that first and so it kept them occupied or pay them the one that keep quiet the longest got the most money and <laughs> we could figure out you know that was inventing to make them get along when we were traveling but those are the fun times i think back on this is times with their dad and when we go do things together and when we have church activities Back in, in when we were in Grand Junction, we were still kind of in the mission field when we first got there, and and the members were very close, and and they uh, would spend a lot of time having church activities. They'd go to the Mesa, Grand Mesa, up on the, the other mountains, you know, and have picnics and outings together, and they'd have a lot of church activity. And we both things were fun times with the kids. And, and just raising kids, getting them to their assignments and to their classes. And I had a mother that helped an awfully lot with the kids. She helped them in their scouting or to take them dancing or wherever they had to go. And she just done so much for them that, that we wouldn't have been able to do for a lot of them, you know, gave them opportunities they wouldn't have had otherwise. And, and uh, it was fun when we'd come home to see grandma and grandpa's family. And, and they'd come down sometimes in the summer and, your dad and Jim come down quite often and stay with their grandparents in the summertime and help her around the yard and do little chores and stuff. So they were acquainted with people in Blanding and Grand Junction Bowl. So, um, Grandma, if you could give some parenting advice to your grandkids, um, uh, what, what would you tell us, you know, what would be your parenting advice? My, my advice to your parents? To, well, you? to, to both of us, but my parents aren't really raising kids. Well, I guess you, we're all still raising kids, but to... Yeah, that's how raising you, you have a wonderful uh, family system going where you're doing things like this and being together for all your activities at least once or twice a year. That's marvelous. We used to try to have family reunions, and then our family got so large that when we couldn't do it at home, we'd go to the library or somewhere else and do it or on the mountain and have different activities that were fun to do. But uh, I would say my advice to you is be obedient. <laughs> That's the best advice I could give to anybody growing up. It's sometimes hard for children to do that. And, and uh, Joseph came to visit me just prior to going on his mission one time. And we were talking and he'd spent the day with me. And, and he said, Grandma, he said, I decided a long time ago the best way for me to live was to be obedient. He said, I mean in everything, I'm going to try and do that. And I think if you could do that, it would help children make 
a lot less mistakes and make better choices and maybe uh, they'd find that uh, they would you know not have so many things in life that they uh, had to go through that were not, not otherwise you don't know because we don't know what life would be like grandpa told me one time i said wouldn't you love to go back and start all over again in raising our kids and i said i wouldn't make the mistake i know i wouldn't that i've made and he said no i wouldn't go back for anything he said i've had a glorious life he says you know if you were able to go back he said you may not make the same mistakes but you'd make mistakes because we don't get to talk about that and so he said don't beat yourself up over he said just we'll just keep going and try and doing the best we can and help where we can and grandpa always tried to do that and, and uh, we'd go and visit the kids when we could we missed i know devar missed out on a lot of their activities because he wasn't able to be there, not because he didn't want to be there but there were times when he would be out of town or yeah. having supplies he had to run or just something would come up you know and I, I think the kids, some of them kind of resented that, that he didn't get to see all of their sport activities or go to the recitals and, and things that he would have been, he would have done if he was in town, but, but uh, he missed out on a lot of that and they missed out too because of it. So uh, we did try in our way with all that big family, you know, to help the kids to, to uh, have what opportunities they could have. And, and uh, one thing we did try to do and I sometimes wonder if it would have been easier the other way. Is we tried to let them have their free agency, but uh, sometimes free agency brings a lot of sorrow into people's lives. Mm-hmm. And we've we've gone through that with some of the kids, and and I don't know, some family might get by without it, but very few do. When you really get to, if you could see the inside of everyone's home, I think everyone has some challenge. It won't be the same, but every family's going to have a challenge of some kind. And yeah. they'll have their problems. So you do the best you can. Just love each yeah. other and keep loving them. And, you know, as I get older and and uh, I find that it isn't the material things a lot that mean so much anymore. It's maybe they once did trying to get ahead and, and uh, stay on top and everything. It's, it's just knowing that you have a family that loves you and, and you love them. To me, that is uh, what it's all about when it comes right down to it and, and becomes more important all the time. And I think you'll find that out with your children as they leave home and, and you think back how quickly their youth came and went. There's Mackenzie now. She just had a birthday and she's on a mission and the way at school and Life goes on. You've got kids now that are growing up and getting involved in other things in school and sports. And you find yourself more involved all the time, but, and that's good if you can possibly do that. You find time for each other. And you know, one thing that was hard for our family to do, and I wish we'd have done it oftener, is we didn't say, I love you a lot. We just figured the kids knew that. And uh, we did. We loved them and we did the best we could for them and everything, but they said they didn't see a lot of, uh, they didn't hear a lot of that or see a lot of open affection. But I said, you know, Grandpa was kind of private about those things in his life and, and uh, he wasn't one to put on the display of 
being out in public and <laughs> you know, do, doing a lot of battling and like that and stuff, but uh, it it was a little bit hard for him to say the <laughs> words. And when he said it, you know, you might as well take it. This don't gonna happen too often. No, but uh, he did, you know. But uh, and towards the end, before when Grandpa was leaving, I think it became easier for him to tell his kids he loved them to say the words. Yeah, you know. And you know, it was hard for Grandpa to shed tears. He kind of kept his feelings, his emotions inside more. And as he got older, I would notice that his eyes would sometimes fill with tears. He didn't like to show that emotion, but uh, he had feelings I think a lot of the kids didn't really realize a lot of times. And the first time I actually saw Grandpa break down and, and cry was when our little boy died, little Terry. And that's the first time I saw him just weep, you know. I just thought he was the toughest and strongest person in the whole world. And <laughs> when I was first married to him, I didn't know how to take him because he teased me. I'd believe everything he'd say. And then he'd get around our friends and he said, did you believe that? And <laughs> he'd embarrass me. And he said, I, I knew it was gullible. I really was. I just believed every word he ever uttered. And uh, I'd embarrass myself and him both sometimes. But yeah, but, that's that's. Grandma, that's really funny. That's funny because I kind of do this. I, I kind of do the same thing with uh, with my wife, and I know my siblings kind of do. We'll, we'll kind of tease our wives or tell them something that you know isn't entirely true, and and uh, they believe it. And so now, now I know where I get that from. Well, I was going to tell you one time your dad told me something that made me think about more. The school was out, and boys couldn't work with their father in the morning mm -hmm. until they were eighteen. So I had to find something for him to do. So I had to save that house cleaning and yard work and a lot of different projects for him to do. And one of the first assignments was to wash down all the walls and the windows and to really get a thorough cleaning. <laughs> so I got them all loaded up about the day after school was out with buckets and clean water and washcloths and, and, uh, and uh, dish towels to dry windows with everything and you know. all. And that didn't last too long. Pretty soon they were flipping each other and horsing around. And I lit right in the middle of them and started yelling at them. And I said, that's what they weren't. They weren't there to do that. They were there to get this work done. They better get with it. And I really tore into them. Anyway, after they settled down and got the work done, Joel came to me and said, Mother, why is it that you always tell us when you do something wrong, but you never tell us when you do anything right? And I said, don't I? He said, no, you don't. And I said, well, I'll tell all my friends and everybody I can get to stop and listen. How come I don't tell you kids? I guess I just figure you know it. He said, well, we don't. And it made me think about that, you know, where I got, where I'd tell them more after that, you know, when I'd say thank you or appreciate this or, or something like that. But I guess I just assumed they knew. Yeah. And kids sometimes don't. Yeah. And so it doesn't tell, hurt them, I guess, at first to tell them that. Yeah, and I think we can tell on that a lot with kids growing up. You know, we just tried to involve them in everything and and let them know we loved them and do everything we could for them. So, so Grandma, can yeah. I, can I ask you a couple more couple more questions? Uh, and we didn't really let you talk about uh, your family, and then by that I mean how many grandkids do you have? How many great grandkids do you have? How many great great grandkids? Next time you talk to him, I'm going to try to have that 
figured out. I was asking Tork this morning to give me a, a number on some of his family because I couldn't tell you today exactly how many. So I'm going to have to sit down and actually figure it out. So I'll have a, an account. I know with your two new babies coming up, I'll be having two more grand, great grandchildren. And with Laura Lynn having her first grandchild, Jet to be Jim's first great grandchild, this, I think by the first of June, that will be one of my another five generations. So I'm going to have to total up the, the generations, how many children, grandchildren, great grandchildren, and great great grandchildren I have now. And I don't have an exact total yet. Do you have a do you just have a ballpark number, an est- estimate as far as what, like grandkids? Now, What's that? But I couldn't give you. I, I think it's over two hundred now. Wow. But I couldn't exactly say. But that's pretty good for seventy six years of, <laughs> of being married. Yeah. Seventy six years in that, in April. Okay, so here's here's my other question, Grandma. You never forget a birthday. You always know what's going on with all of those. It seems like it seems like all of those 300 kids and grandkids and great grandkids and great great grandkids. How do you do that? How do you how do you stay on and keep track of all that? Well, I used to do it off the top of my head, but I have a little black book now that I have birthdays written down in. And so I use that a lot. You know, each month I I get my little calendar for the month. and, And so I have a a date, you know, on a birthday, but it used to be, I didn't have to have that, but I do now because there's so many, but I, I know most of them, uh, but I, I do have to check back and make sure that I don't forget somebody because it'd be easy to do now with, with all of them. And I'm still trying at this point to do that because it's my contact with them. So I hope I can continue to do that for a while. Yeah. Well, it's, I'm always, you know, and, and one of my kids' favorite things to do is call call Grandma Grandma Madge uh, on their birthday and just um, vi- visit with you. Just very good to say, you know, call and tell me that thank me and everything like that. I appreciate that. You know, I, I don't expect it in any way, and I, that's not why I do it. But it's nice, you know, when they do that, it's fun to talk to them for a few minutes and, and just find out what they're doing, what their activities are and everything. They're sure doing well, all of them. Your grace just graduated. Yeah. <laughs> she she should still be a little girl out here riding on the tractor. She's <laughs> <laughs> a young girl graduating. Yeah, so time really passes fast. So, anyway, you can keep calling me, you know, like this if you want to from time to time. I don't know if that's helped any. There's so many stories. And you lived as long as Grandma has. You had a lot of stories <laughs> in your past. And, so far, the Heavenly Father has blessed me that I'm able to remember back from the time I was about three years old in quite good detail, most things. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, I, you know, I'd love to talk again and hear some more of the stories. I mean, I think we just kind of scratched the surface of, of some of the, uh, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know your and grandpa's courtship story or how that all happened. And that was kind of fun to hear about and, and uh, some of this other stuff. And so I'd love to talk. What's that? I said it was a lot different than they do oh, today. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 But um, it was really fun, fun talking to your grandma and thanks for sharing. And hopefully we can do this again soon. Well, I do too. It'd be fun. Glad you did that. I'm glad you're doing this. So, yeah, and you probably don't have a lot of time to get it all done. (laughs) 
Well, <laughs> when you get to my age, every day is a blessing. So. <laughs> well, we need to get down there. I, I know that we were actually going to come down over our spring break, but it didn't end up happening. But we're going to get down there soon to visit you and and come see see how things are going down there. But in the meantime, it was really good talking to you, Grandma. And we, we love you. We love you guys, too. Hey, Sam, it's it's Lynn. I've been here listening to this, and it's just been wonderful to hear Grandma tell all these stories. So thank you for doing this today. And just want you to know that we we love all of you guys very much. Wow. We miss you. We wish you were here in Blanding with us. But <laughs> we know that can't be. But anyway, just tell your mom, dad, hello, and your families, and know that we all love I you. I will. Thanks, Lynn. And and uh, we'll, we'll uh, Lynn, um, sorry, Grandma, what was that? I'm so grateful to have my family here, Glenn, and, and my kids that are here. They just do everything for me. You know, um, Jane stepped up the plate. I needed her more, and she's doing so good. So everybody's taking good care of me. Well, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Enjoy the rest of your, your day together. Thanks, Grandma. You want to. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Sam. Sam.